So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And, uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Welcome to episode 16 of COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, and today we are talking about information and misinformation, all the different types of confusion that's out there as it relates to COVID-19 news. So even recently I saw a World Health Organization announcement that said that when people were exercising, not to wear a mask. I was very surprised by this because, well, I guess when it said, it said something more specific to like, if you're running, not to wear a mask. But there's a lot of assumptions there. First of all, they said something about how the mask would be full of sweat. The mask would be full of moisture and it would basically lose its effectiveness because of the person running and sweating. So I have two things to say about that. We already know that wearing a mask is helpful, protecting ourselves. And in a previous episode, I talked about how you can equate it to like having a tissue to your face. When you sneeze, when you cough, being able to cover that so the particles don't spread. It's really as simple as that. So when people are running, I think there's so many additional factors to consider in terms of whether a mask is effective or not. Number one, we already know masks are effective. Number two, the factor of whether someone's sweating is another issue. Like I know when you're running, you do tend to sweat, but at what point you can be doing those intervals, running and walking one minute at a time. You're not really gonna sweat all that much for the most part. And that's the other question. How many minutes are people running? Are we talking about marathon runners, 5K runners? Are people just doing regular exercise out in the street? Because that really matters because of the fact that where you're running, you're gonna have different levels of crowding. You know, if someone's running along the beach and there's a ton of people walking by everywhere, then maybe that mask is not effective. But did they say that the mask would actually be less effective in terms of like 
Are they actually making things worse for people? That is a question that I have. So let's say someone is wearing a wet mask, someone is sweating, and they still have their mouth covered, and they're marathon runners, and they've been like extremely sweating. Well, first of all, it's like a tissue, like I said. So maybe they've got another one in their pocket. Maybe they've got another cloth, handkerchief, sweat towel, or something with them. So the thing is like, you don't use a wet, totally damp, wet towel. So those are things that I have questions about still. I have to say, I believe it's quite irresponsible for an organization to say not to wear a mask after all the recent information that we've heard in terms of effectiveness. If you're running and you're passing by a lot of people really close by, you better believe that it's going to be infectious. It just really depends on how dense the population is in your location where you're running. It depends on how damp the cloth is that you have on your face, how much you've been sweating. So many factors and I just think it's quite short-sighted World Health Organization to tell people not to wear a mask when exercising. I think that's kind of dangerous and people are still at risk when they're outdoors. It's still contagious. So we don't have enough information there. So that's something that I thought was somewhat misleading, unfortunately, from a international organization. I look forward to hearing a little bit more about that in the coming days, but that's a concern that I recently had in terms of misinformation, even from higher sources of government officials. And I've seen this already. At some point, it's really up to you to make the educated decision. It's really up to you to weigh the pros and cons, to consider all the different factors. Even though one organization says one thing, another organization will say another. There are just a lot of confusing factors out there right now. If we don't get it right, it's our health that is going to be at risk. So really taking the time to weigh the pros and cons, read the different information, and find out what makes sense for you can help to save your life during this time. We know that in the United States and a lot of countries, there's a lot of obesity. There's a lot of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol. These are all pre-existing conditions. So when people say it's not that contagious, that it's like the flu, I think we've already had enough information out there that says otherwise. But also the fact that These other pre-existing chronic diseases are already out there. Out on another level, if you are autoimmune like some of us and immunocompromised, it is a concern. We do want to take the most caution that we can. So if you're running and the World Health Organization says not to wear a mask, make sure you're running in a place where there's nobody else around. I think that's really the main factor in whether or not you would need a mask. If you're out in public in a completely isolated area, your concerns of having a mask on are probably pretty low because you probably won't run into anybody. In previous episodes earlier on, public health organizations were saying that there was little risk of community spread when that was already ridiculous. So again, we just have to take this information and think about it in terms of our own safety and take that extra level of cautiousness. Another thing that's out there right now is family gatherings. I know my family wants to gather. I know a lot of people are still gathering and they think maybe if, you know, we gather in smaller numbers that it won't be so bad. It's still risky because you don't know where those people have been. You don't know what people have been exposed to. The only people that you have control over is you. 
and whoever is in your family who's being enclosed in social distancing the same way that you are. Otherwise, you don't know where people have been. And just because someone's a relative doesn't mean that they're disease-free. It doesn't make them disease-free, unfortunately. Just because someone's related to us doesn't mean they're safe. We do need to continue to take those precautions and listen to our intuition. And again, with those national organizations, international, even local governments saying things about community spread having not been a concern, finding out two weeks later that that was not the case, it's too late. It's just too late. Knowing that something is highly contagious, I think that's enough to know. And so in this episode, we're speaking to Dr. Sajad Fazal. He is in Canada. He is at Western University in Calgary, and he is a research associate in public health, just like me. And he is looking at misinformation. He's analyzing data and looking at the information out there in terms of health communications and the misinformation that's also out there. I think he's really doing important work right now because of the fact that there is a moving target because it's a novel virus. A lot of things are not quite known yet. And then I guess even like we talk about the mask wearing in the past and even up to like two days ago, organizations saying that's not helpful. And then now saying that it is helpful and, and actually required in many spaces. So there's a lot of changing information that is dependent upon research, which is another level of inquiry because sometimes research is skewed. And that's another type of analysis that we can go into in another time. For the most part, we do know certain things have helped to protect people. And in the last episode, we spoke to, spoke to Dr. Michelle Dickinson in New Zealand, who talked to us about how New Zealand has been able to stay COVID-free for many, many days in a row, no new cases, which is amazing, but also very simple at the same time. It was the same guidelines that we were asked to follow at the very beginning back in March. People didn't want to do them. They felt that their freedoms were being stepped upon and they didn't think it was serious. People were still gathering and so on. This episode was recorded about three or four weeks ago. At that time, we were just beginning to go into what we decided was phase two. Regardless of the numbers out there, knowing that infections were still out there and the numbers were continuing to grow, people were getting antsy. They were getting cabin fever and wanting to get out there again and believing that maybe it would just magically disappear. Unfortunately, in the past few days, or in the past week, we found that the population was increasing in infection rates in various states across the country. We saw that there was some relation to protesting, although I do commend people that some people were out there in masks, but then also there were protests that wanted haircuts. People wanted to be out. They wanted services, right? They wanted people out there to give them the services that they believed that they had the freedom to get, and the numbers went up. So recently, the bars, the restaurants that we talk about in this episode, and the beaches in many counties of, for example, in California, such as Los Angeles even, are closed for 4th of July this weekend. A lot of the parks and places, public parking spaces, are being closed off and they will not be allowed to go over there. Bars and restaurants and so on were shut down once again because we had not fully controlled the spread of this virus. And again, last episode with Michelle Dickinson told us, informed us, of how effective it can be just to follow those basic guidelines of social distancing, going to the store just once a week with a covering on the face, and getting that one time a day outdoors of walking without social interaction, without close 
proximity to other people and people would be okay. That was the simple formula that we have not been able to follow. And we are four months into this pandemic and I don't know when it's going to end. And my fear is that we will not take this seriously until it gets to the point of infection where we know people who are infected by the virus, knowingly infected and hospitalized. And we see the seriousness where it's too close in many cases. Unfortunately, I kind of think that it's going to get to that point until we decide to fully take control and take action as a country and as a community and to look after ourselves and others to actually take control of this virus. The steps involved in controlling COVID-19 are actually, they're actually very simple. So in this episode, we're talking to Dr. Sajad Fazel. He's going to be talking to us about his work in Canada and Calgary, and also the public health measures that have been taken in the region, in the provinces, in terms of handling the virus. And it sounds like they've been doing really good with following the guidelines and taking care of their health and wellness. And then we talk about some of the main findings that he's seen so far in his research on COVID-19 misinformation. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of COVID-19, Public Health, Policy and Culture. Today we're going to be talking about the various types of misinformation that's taking place out there with respect to the pandemic and what's happening. This is an important topic and this can be a life-saving conversation that we're having right now about information that is correct and what the misinformation looks like out there. So today we are speaking with Sajad Fazel. He is located in Canada, in Calgary. He's a public health researcher and he's going to be telling us a little bit more about misinformation and how we can protect ourselves from this type of information and make sure that we know what's correct out there. So welcome, Dr. Fazel. Thanks a lot, April. I really appreciate being on this podcast. Please tell us more about you. I am currently working with a team of researchers um, here in Canada, and we're studying uh, the extent and the reach of COVID-19 misinformation, as well as where it originates from and who is more susceptible or vulnerable uh, to believe in these types of misinformation. Uh, as you know, because of COVID-19, there's been a lot of myths and rumors going around, which is quite dangerous and even lethal to people's health and to people's lives as well. And so this is something we took on to study. The study is interesting. Obviously, we hope misinformation overall reduces and uh, people only share accurate information. But this is the state of the world right now, and we are doing our best to understand it and address it as well. Thank you for sharing this very important topic. I'm so glad to hear that you're doing this research out there because it will save lives. Can you tell us how things are going currently, where you're located, or what you're seeing in terms of current events with the pandemic? In Calgary or in Alberta, so to speak, the government, the public health agency, the health professionals have done a great job at managing the pandemic. When it comes to guidelines and orders such as social distancing, making sure people understand and get the message when it comes to wearing masks, washing their hands, these type of things, uh, the message has gotten across. Albertans have understood and they have done their best in 
in terms of following these guidelines. So that's something I'm very proud of that we have done well here. And the messaging from the Chief Medical Officer of Health of Alberta was very on point. I mean, it was something that a lot of the people who live in this province resonated with. And that shows you, of course, the importance of messaging that's clear, that's precise, and that's empathetic as well. So I'm glad to see that. And the number of cases have reduced. Um, it was less than 20 or, or just around 20 new cases per day. So that's pretty good compared to many other countries. We've already opened up. So the stage one of opening is there. So restaurants uh, are filled 50 at 50% capacity, for example. Um, additional surgeries or elective surgeries are slowly getting opened up and they're allowed certain allied health services such as opticians and dental services have started opening up as well of course following certain guidelines so that's good to see if we look at things globally i think we have seen that those countries that have already passed the peak in europe as well as in asia are slowly coming back to life as normal although there are certain states in the united states as well as certain provinces in Canada, such as Ontario and Quebec, where the cases are reducing, but they're still not as low as needed to be, you can say, to reopen, right? And I think it's hard. It's a struggle because when you have one part of the country that has very few cases and ready to open another that's not opening yet or is slightly delayed, it does bring a challenge. I'm the type of person who says, if you're not ready to open or if you don't think you can open and make sure that the numbers continue staying low, then don't. And Canada's a huge country. It's a huge geographic region. You can see where there are certain provinces where there probably have very few cases because it's just not very highly populated. But then you might have these cities, some of the larger cities of Canada, probably having a little more trouble with bringing down numbers, I would predict. But to have the same policies across the board for different types of populations can be difficult. Absolutely. And you're right. Yes. The population in Ontario, for example, is much, much higher compared to Alberta. And so you would see this difference in number of cases anyway. So you're right. And and I think this does highlight the importance of having local public health leaders, provincial or statewide public health leaders who would target the messaging and tailor it to the people within that area and within that context, within that city, within that population. In the United States, I've seen a bit of both statewide and also citywide restrictions or countywide restrictions on social distancing and then also public parks, which parks were going to open again, which beaches were going to open. At the national level in the United States, we don't have very much in terms of policy going on. But then at the state level, we have varying levels of restriction and it's not even based on the number of cases in many cases. But then also we have this county level and then even sometimes the citywide with regard to parks and beaches, things like that. Are you seeing in Canada those same types of variations in policy based on location? Generally, the guideline to reopen is, again, it's a provincial issue because health is managed by the province and not by the federal government. Okay. Uh, so it's not the national. The Public Health Agency of Canada does give national guidelines, of course, but then each province does tailor it. Now, 
I have seen a lot of similarities between the guidelines, something like, you know, when the restaurant would open in stage one, they would open in 50% capacity, mandating sanitization and various wipes and things to be available when it comes to hair salons, if they cannot maintain physical distancing, then having one person at a time come in with an appointment. So I've seen some of these guidelines similar, which is great because at the end of the day, most of the guidelines that are produced are based on evidence as well as context and so it's good to see that. So is that happening in Alberta currently where they're opening the restaurants and the hair salon? With these specific guidelines and restrictions, yeah. You're saying that a lot of people are following these guidelines and over time have you seen that even though things are opening now that the mask wearing has actually helped to protect the population and you know despite being open now and people going out are the numbers still staying low? So the numbers are low. I mean, one city, which is Edmonton, had a slight rise in cases yesterday. I'm not sure why this happened. I do think that there might be a slight rise in cases because some people may be a, bit, a little bit loose with how they actually follow the guidelines. We are human beings and there is this feeling that, oh, everything's back to normal now. Probably I don't need this, right? Yeah. So, so there is that. And I, I don't know how many people will continue with the mask wearing. It is important in terms of making sure you who are infected don't spread it to others. I'm not sure how much of that would continue. I think it's left to see whether people continue wearing uh, masks or not but I guess it depends on like when you go when you're in a grocery store or places I haven't seen much people wearing masks at least in the area where I live oh, wow. similarly yeah similarly when you go to restaurants but I've seen people maintaining physical distance okay so that's a good thing that people are, are maintaining physical distance so nobody would get too close people are maintaining the two meters distance so that's a good thing i'm concerned about people going to restaurants though mm -hmm. because again that's a very small enclosed area right and mm -hmm. we know that it's also about uh, when you go back when we start to reopen and relaunch where you go is right so you are safer going to a park and jogging there compared to going to a gym for example right yeah. and recently that i've heard in which is in stage two of opening, which is going to happen within the next uh, week or so. Yes. They will allow casinos, indoor recreational areas, swimming pools, and indoor uh, sports arenas to reopen. And yes. that is a bit concerning. Yes. I think it's a little too soon. And again, you're putting people in enclosed spaces and somewhere like gyms are considered a little dangerous because it's a place where you have people in an enclosed area and there's a lot of people touching a lot of surfaces, mm -hmm. right? And coming to close contact with those same surfaces again and again. That's where I'm more worried about or casinos, for example. Everyone's touching something over in a small area. So these are the places where I'm most worried about. A fast food restaurant, yes, the high footfall is there. But at the same time, how much time do you spend in a, in a fast food restaurant compared to in a sit-down restaurant? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you're actually sitting there for a longer period of time. So I think uh, we have to be cognizant, I believe, all of us, in terms of how much time we spend outside, how much time we spend in a crowded place, and how much time we spend in a place that is enclosed compared to a place that has ventilation and that is outside. The fact that the mask is great in terms of protecting other people, for the most part, the cloth mask that people are wearing, the only one that's really available right now, is not going to protect us. So if you're going to go into these enclosed spaces, even though you're wearing the cloth mask, it doesn't really help you because it protects other people from 
you being right. in, uh, infecting right. them more so. Right, it doesn't filter the virus. You're right. Um, and it, yeah. but it protects. But then the thing is, if everyone wears it, then yeah. we are pretty good, right? Yes, as long as everyone is wearing it. Yes, and so likewise over here, I, I received notice that some of the yoga studios are going to be opening next week, like you mentioned. It's really interesting because there's a lot of the deep breaths, a lot of the the air is um, going to be circulating through the room. They have some UV lights that they're going to be using, but I'm not sure how effective that's going to be in terms of killing virus in the room. That is the thing. You see, there's this particular wavelength of UV called UVC, which is a germicide, uh-huh. um, and that can kill bacteria and virus. And that's something that they use in healthcare settings, as well as they use in some saloons, where these enclosed sort of chambers where they put in certain items uh-huh, like that sterilize. Uh-huh. Yeah, but a person standing in there would not get rid of the virus from them. Number one. Number two, it'll be interesting to see how things go. But mm-hmm. we do know that UV light does cause skin cancer. Oh, great. And that's the thing. And that's where the concern comes. When you have these people say, oh, I just put in UV lights. Well, have you thought about the skin cancer? And, and what do you think? Like putting UV lights in a room will just get rid of the virus like that? I think all these things are supposed to be looked into more carefully. And, and things like this, sometimes they are borderline pseudoscience. Like one of the other things that people say um, and I've seen this more internationally in developing uh, countries that you see people say that steam inhalation would cure COVID-19. It's not true. This is pseudoscience because somebody has taken the concept of an autoclave machine which is used for sterilizing uh, equipment in a hospital or in a mm-hmm. lab. Mm-hmm. And then they have said, oh, what if I do steam at home? Maybe it's going to kill COVID-19. Well, it doesn't work like that. You know, bleach will be effective on instruments, but you can't inject yourself with bleach. Please tell them. <laughs> I think that's where it border where somebody takes something that works as a disinfectant and says maybe it'll work on the body, but but it doesn't. That that's not true. And so I think about hospitals. If all of these things were known to fight viruses and kill them in the air, then we would have nurses and people in the emergency room still alive today who are helping the frontline employees in the hospitals would not be dying from this virus. Yes, and it's it's fine line of understanding what works as a disinfectant what works in terms of sterilizing items Mm -hmm. and what actually works in the body for a human being is different. You drink bleach, you're going to get side effects and probably it depends on how much you drink. You can even get fatalities, but then if it's used on an equipment, well, that's fine, right? I think understanding that like UV light, yeah, you will get skin cancer, but put UV light and sterilize, um, let's say saloon equipment. Yeah, that's fine. Tell us more about what needs to be improved out there in terms of misinformation. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research and what you found out there in terms of misinformation? Yeah, so we are currently continuing the studies on misinformation And if you see, one thing that I've noticed is that you always had different types of misinformation out there pre-COVID-19. There's always been people who have said, oh, cannabis cures cancer, right? There's always always been people who say immune boosting pills, you know, it'll help your immunity, maybe it'll help you against the flu. And that that sort of false conspiracies were there. There are people who said 5G is, is, is bad for your health. Um, there are people who said mobile phones cause cancer. There are people who yeah. used to say... So all these various um, misconcepts and conspiracy theories, why they're pre-COVID-19. What I found, though, is during COVID-19, everybody somehow managed to stick their conspiracy to, to this virus. They made to tailor or mold their conspiracy 
to fit COVID-19. So you'd see the anti-vax people always says, oh yeah, this is a made-up virus, it's a hoax, blah, 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 just so that pharma companies and government can make money and force us into using vaccines or they want to control our minds. So they use that spin. Mm -hmm. Those who are talking about 5G and health effects are like, oh, now COVID-19 spreads through 5G. Again, incorrect. Those who are talking about immune-boosting pills, now they have been like, oh yeah, vitamins, immune-boosting pills will help your immune system go stronger and fight COVID-19. Again, untrue. So you see everybody trying to use different myths and conspiracies and just targeting this topic because it is a topic that has affected everyone worldwide. I think it's important for people to understand there are those who are benefiting from it. The guy who talks about immune boosting pills or the influencer talking about immune boosting pills or the celebrity posting about it, he's earning money or she's earning money or they are earning money from this thing. And I think that's something for us to understand that there are people who are actually benefiting from misinformation. They're actually feeding off the fear and the lack of understanding that is there. And what happens is you see, because it's a novel virus and we are still learning a lot of things about it, we are still continuing. And every day, as you can see, something new we learn about the virus, right? Yeah. On, on how it spreads, on maybe what can help, how we can reduce the spread, on its morphology and stuff. So if you look at that, and because we are still learning, there is a lot of unanswered questions. There has been at the beginning, there will continue to be some unanswered questions, which more research will uncover and solve slowly over time. And when you have a gap of this knowledge, when you go to health researchers and public health agencies, then you are told that, well, this is what we know, but this is what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And then a snake oil salesperson says, hey, I've got the cure right here. Just take one immune boosting pill and you're good. Or somebody says, you know what? Take vitamin D and you're good. It does make it more appealing, even though it is not true. Having that gap is another thing. In terms of what we can do better, mm -hmm. after understanding this, I think there are a number of things. Number one, I think as public health professionals, as researchers and just healthcare workers in general, we need to make sure our messaging is clear is more transparent and we actually explain how things are going on. So for example, if you look at the masks issue, the previous recommendation was that masks aren't important. And then the recommendation was, oh, it's good for everybody to wear masks. Mm -hmm. Now that shift and change, some people took it as, oh, you know what? These people are flip-flopping or they don't know what they're talking about. But in reality, policies change as more research comes up. And one research does not a policy make. You look at the body of evidence overall, mm -hmm. a number of research studies that looked at various demographics, various sample sizes, and then you make a policy out of it. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't a flaw so much as this was a development based on the research. It hasn't changed the fact that when you wear a mask, you are not protecting yourself. You are protecting others. And so I think you have to be open to understanding when we look at policy or public health messages changing, as a society, we need to be more open and say, well, this is progress, not that this is a flip-flop. Mm -hmm. that's, that's number one in terms of how we take this message. Number two is in terms of the public health and health professionals themselves, when they give out the messaging, I think it's important to be clear and make it understood that this is still developing and as more research comes, we will continue to change policies and understand more. The problem is, I've seen that when the pandemic first started, a lot of the positions taken by various health authorities, which were correct at the time, but they did not mention 
that this is an evolving or developing thing. And so people took it as a concrete thing. Well, well, this is, is, this is it. And then later on when the change happened, it sort of caused some sort of distrust for these institutions. But had it been made clear from the beginning that this is still evolving, it would have been better. That's number one. Number two, being empathetic. It is a tough time. There are many who have lost incomes. There are many who have lost their livelihood. Just an example, think of an Uber driver, right? During mm-hmm. the pandemic, that, that business has gone down. Same with teachers, for example, who teach kindergarten or high school kids. So it has affected a lot of sectors, the mm-hmm. airline industry, etc. And I think it is important when we give recommendations, we are also empathetic. If you look at one of the provinces that was successful in controlling the pandemic and is continuing progressing well is British Columbia here in Canada. And the chief medical officer of health, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who was actually featured on a New York Times article recently, she was very empathetic with her messaging. Whenever she gave recommendations, whenever she talked about guidelines, whenever she gave updates about what's going on, she was very empathetic. Her message of being kind, being calm resonated with many people. And I think that is something that sometimes is missing. And it's an element that is very important. I personally, when debunking misinformation, have noticed that being empathetic and trying to understand the point of view or the perspective of the person opposite you has actually helped me in making them understand and it has helped them actually voice out their opinions and say why they believe in a particular conspiracy. Being empathetic is another important communication strategy that we need to follow, especially when it comes to crisis management. How are you taking care of yourself during this time? And then also, how do you recommend other people take care of themselves during this time with all this misinformation that's out there because of information technology and because it's so easy to know what's happening we get overstimulated or hyperstimulated right we get bombarded with information from all sides and sometimes it's good just to take a break plug out from your social media and stuff or make sure you only get information from accurate sources from reliable sources not fox news but from actually reliable sources such as the cdc the various health authorities and health agencies well-known health professionals one of the things that you can do is to make sure you avoid this hyperstimulation and you actually choose your sources well to begin with. And the second thing I think is also not to believe everything that gets shared on social media to actually fact check it if you have the time, but just to take things with a grain of salt when you see it first, then unless you know it's from a reliable source, then you believe it. Because oftentimes you see someone hear something and then they're worried And then later on, it's proven that it's not true um, and they have stressed themselves out unnecessarily. The other thing also is I think it's important to understand that as humans, we are social beings and having this physical distancing measures is not easy, right? It's not even easy on your own mental health. And it's important to take care of yourself by doing hobbies, uh, doing things that make you happy. So I normally go to a park down the road here, which has a lot of bunnies. Yeah, so I just go see the bunnies running around. It's good. I talk to family, talk to some friends on the weekends. And so these are things that, you know, that brings that connection. It makes me happy. And it's a way of taking care of myself as well as spending some time just contemplating and reflecting. And I think these are important strategies for everyone to have ways of relieving stress. If you have any hobby that you enjoy, 
to take it up. Summaries here, if you like gardening, well, this is the right time. There's a lot of things that we can do. And these are some things that we have to learn. And I think one of the things that COVID-19 did highlight is the importance of connection and sort of how we can take care of ourselves, right? Because a lot of people have been stressed during this time. And so it's important to highlight some of these strategies. If you think yoga is something that helps you, then yeah, turn on a yoga channel on YouTube and, and follow it. So I think just because we are physically apart doesn't mean we can't come together uh, we can't help each other and we can't be a community. That's the benefit of the technology that's there. The downside is the misinformation. But the benefit is that you can come together as a community. Mm -hmm. If you have a kid at home and they're out of school and you want to connect with them more, maybe do activities, you can go on YouTube, write kids activities, you know. So there's different ways to continue with life. What would you like the world to know? during this time. Right, okay. So I'm just gonna leave all the misinformation stuff aside, man. I'm just gonna say that I would like everyone to understand and know that as human beings, we adapt to different situations. Mm -hmm. We have that inherent nature in us to adapt to different situations. And I think that is something to keep in mind, that we will overcome the challenges we face mm -hmm. together, united, yes. And we will also be able to adapt to various situations and changes if need be. And as a society, if we work together, united, we will come forward and successful. Thank you. Yes, we will get through this. This will pass. We will get through this. Exactly. This will pass and brighter days will come. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Fazel. Really appreciating this information about misinformation, how to counteract it and how to find correct and accurate information so that we can maintain our health and wellness during this time. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Audrey. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, any burning questions about COVID-19, feel free to send me a message in Anchor. Anchor.fm slash COVID-19 PPC is our website. And until next time, stay well and take good care out there.